So for those of you just tuning in, hello, my name's Matt, I'm the community specialist here. And uh, we have the wonderful Sam Anger, who has uh, been writing music for our events, kind of specifically crafted for each of the talks. The name of the piece is uh, Body Scan, and uh, this musical segment for Agora explores the concept of body scanning. A body scan meditation brings attention to the different areas of the body, from the crown of the head to the soles of the feet. The words in this piece attempt to map the memory of a person within different spaces of the body, evoking the emotive quality of each of the senses. The music borrows from the slow, meditative sound of spiritual practice, but juxtaposes it with irregular and disruptive kick and snare patterns to coincide with the unrest of the vocals. The video distorts and fragments in short vignettes that fracture before the eyes can source their meaning. While um, I'll pass over to Sam now and you can enjoy this piece of music. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Yeah, hopefully this works. We'll see. Thank you. 
Okay, that's it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that, Sam. For those of you just joining us, thanks so much for, uh, for coming along. My name is Matt. I'm the community specialist here at Agora. So this is our, our talk on the neurological effects of the digital age with the wonderful Gabriella. Yeah, so my name is Gabriella and I'm an independent curator based in Liverpool. Just first of all, saying thank you to Agora for hosting me today. This has actually been a really cool opportunity just to look back at all the research that I've been doing over the past few years and just to kind of collate my thoughts. If any of you haven't come across cognitive sensations before, I'll just give you a quick overview before I look back at uh, how it all emerged. It's a not-for-profit organisation. I am the sole member, <laughs> but I've only just registered it. But I am in a very exciting position to be recruiting a board of directors. So I'm, kind of, I'm looking at developing the organisation. And I make and um, create and commission work that explores the impact of technology on society. So although it's just me, I work with a huge number of different individuals, uh, freelancers, artists, scientists, working on multidisciplinary research that is exploring the impact of our digital devices. Most people would probably know Cognitive Sensations as a blog or like an online platform. For the past year, everything has been online, even prior to the coronavirus. Every three or four months, I change the focus um, of the blog. So one season, we looked at perception. and another season, we looked a lot at smartphones, um, for example, how they impact our sense of space. You know, we carry around these little devices in our pockets all the time and we've got this continuous connectivity. So what does that mean for things like surveillance and our data? And most recently, I did a season on pandemics. I think to kind of give you an idea of how the project first came about, I think it was in 2016, um, I had, I've been doing quite a lot of work in art galleries around the northwest England doing what I like to call art waitressing so anyone in their early stages of their art career will know that you have to do a lot of invigilating and sort of sitting around and in galleries and engaging with visitors and I did that for well I don't even know how many years but at the time this is what I was kind of really heavily engaged with what happens when you sit in a room all day in the same spot engaging with visitors is you learn a lot about people and you become almost a sort of social observer and I was really interested in the impact of people's phones on their gallery experience and I was looking at it from two two different ways one was the impact that it had on their experience of art so you know people it's it's not a very new observation we've been we are in the era of smartphones and we're all kind of really aware of these issues now but I was really interested in how you know people go into a gallery for their kind of exhibition experience but the first thing they do is take out their phones would they read the exhibition information or would they just take a photo of it to maybe read later people were walking around the exhibitions looking through the screens of their phone instead of looking around their surroundings and it's just it kind of struck me you know we're in this age of social media and it seemed like the documentation of people's experience almost seemed more important than the physical experience and what I knew as a kind of stereotypical gallery experience which is you know kind of restorative therapeutic engagement with art was also permeated by this digital presence 
And then the other thing I was interested in was actually the impact of people's phones on their attention. You know, their hands are constantly twitching to their pocket. The notifications are chiming in the gallery. So this experience in the Blue Coat Galleries sparked my curiosity and I began my investigation into the neurological effects of the digital age. As an emerging curator at the time, I was like, okay, I need to try and put together an exhibition about this and I want to try and make an event and to get any project alive you've got to start talking to people who are also interested in your subject. I started speaking to artists and to neuroscientists, all all different types of researchers to kind of engage with their research and start to build a framework of the kind of I guess a digital debate at the time. I also did an online course in neurobiology I have to say, I probably only understood about 20% of the course, but it was really helpful just to kind of get a really basic grasp of how the brain makes connections when you have a thought process, how habits are formed. And having that foundation actually really helps you understand how you might be impacted by technology. I secured a couple of venues, one in London called The Cube and another in Liverpool called FACT, which is an art organisation dedicated to art, science and technology. And I secured my first ever Arts Council funding, which I was totally delighted by and shocked. The project was born called Sensations and it was a public programme of an exhibition, an artwork experience and then five panel discussions. The neurological effects of technology is a massive subject. So it's quite funny because I started very broad and I've been trying to kind of hone, hone in my research to more kind of specific topics. But the five different events looked at uh, attention, memory, perception, biometrics and generations, which is a really interesting one. And it's quite contentious but about how people of different ages might interrupt technology different or how they might be affected by it. Uh, in a different way so that ended I believe it was 2018 maybe that says 2018 and ever since um, the project has more kind of as I said transitioned to online I've got a type of funding from the Arts Council called developing your creative practice and at the time I really wanted to develop my writing practice for all of the events for the Cognitive Sensations public programme, I was writing an essay to try and capture all of the research that came out of the project. You know, I was constantly listening to these amazing ideas from these scientists and artists and researchers and needed to find some way of kind of capturing it. So started to kind of focus on my writing. I had a pot of money to commission writers as well and artists. But at the time, I was really new to kind of new media art, which is ironic because now I'm here on this new media art platform talking about new media art. But it's been a really amazing journey. And gradually, as Cognitive Sensations became more well-known, started interacting with some really interesting artists. And so now there's been more online artworks that have been shown on the platform. Now, I've kind of already mentioned it, but I'm at the exciting point of registering myself as an organisation. And what I want to do is try and bring the public programme back, which will be hard during the coronavirus, but uh, we can do online events like this. Here we are. And integrate it with the more kind of online written content as well and the online artwork. So I think that kind of gives a really brief overview of what I've been doing. I'm not going to go into what I've learned yet because I feel like that's going to come out through the conversation. Um, so I guess I'll hand this over to Alejandra now. The thing that got me really curious is how do you collaborate now uh, with artists, scientists, philosophers online? Did it change during the pandemic or 
it's almost the same. I don't know how you commission, how does that work? So before the pandemic and almost a little part of the beginning of the pandemic, I still have my funding from the Arts Council and I kind of spread it across each season. So every three months I'd have, I don't know, a commission, maybe four people to produce something for the blog. And unfortunately now my funding has run out. So I've I've not I've not got any funding to commission people at the moment. So my focus has been a to try and get more funding in so I can commission people I feel kind of uncomfortable about working with people or asking people to produce something without being able to pay them so that's like big priority and yeah it's it's been really hard because I'm desperate to meet new artists at the moment and especially I think the pandemic has made people really localized now even Mm -hmm. though we're talking to people in lots of different cities someone in New York we're still really aware of our own surroundings and I've become a bit embarrassed that I'm, I don't really know many artists in Liverpool or I do but they're not maybe interested in technology and neuroscience so my current I'm on a current rampage to find people in my local area who are also interested in this um, and I think it, what's been good about the pandemic is it, I've been able to attend events that are hosted in London, which obviously normally I wouldn't be able to. So I've been able to speak to other people from afar, but it's it's, it's not the same online, is it? <laughs> it's yeah. kind of nerve-wracking to like, yeah, hi, I'm Gabriella in front of 60 people you don't know who you can't see. So it's kind of, it's been quite an interesting one. And yeah, I am desperate to meet some real faces again. Super. There's someone asking about methodology. Were you doing any ethnographic research, for example, observation and interviews? Can you please talk a bit about methodology? Yeah, I can follow up. Yeah, I was wondering, um, um, I heard the neuroscience component, but um, what you were describe, what you were saying to document the experience, this seems to me... Um, a very interesting topic to be addressed with methodologies, you know, ethnographic methodologies. So I was wondering if you did any interviews, observation, uh, yes, no, and if not, if you can please speak a bit more about your methodology. Mm-hmm. So as a curator and I'm not a scientist, I can't say that I've done any kind of strict research studies. I've, I've researched them and that's kind of influenced my practice and how I've curated the whole program. But It's more the people who I've been working with and who was involved within the programme. So within the the panel discussions, um, for each event, I'd invite, say, four or five different academics within different disciplines, one neuroscience, maybe one architecture, an artist, a psychologist. The documentation of the project was what they were saying and what their discussion was and the kind of questions that were circulated around the table. We did... I commissioned an artwork by a scientist called Richard Saitovic and an artist called Marcus Lutyens, which was all about sensory experience in the digital age and about how we only use certain senses when we're engaging with technology. And sometimes we kind of lose our kind of relationship with the physical environment. So in their artwork, visitors were blindfolded. Actually, they weren't blindfolded, sorry. <laughs> they there were five black bags and they put their hands in the bag so they couldn't see what they were touching. And within them, there were these really strange, unique, visceral, tactile objects that they were feeling. And that was that was kind of an experiment. And then they'd, they'd um, fill out a questionnaire and kind of talk about 
what, how it made them feel. And a lot of people talked about memories that it induced because I think when you're engaging with certain senses, you're more likely to engage with certain memories. But yeah, it was nothing. I think, does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. It's very interesting because actually you rely on the expertise of your collaborators and then they may share their experiences and their research. So yeah, that's very interesting. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. I'm a learner. I'm constantly just absorbing the expertise of all the interesting people that are getting involved. <laughs> I also wonder, we maybe artists and scientists do have the same questions, but do they have the same language? How do you find that common ground? So that's a really interesting observation about artists and scientists having the same questions, because I completely agree with you. But no, the language is completely different. I went to this really interesting conference called VSAC, which was the Visual Science of science and art conference in Belgium. It was about the marriage of art and science and they invited scientists um, to present their uh, research on visual perception. And they also they invited artists who had a kind of uh, related practice. And it was all about trying to get two kind of different disciplines together that share similar research and finding ways of us being able to learn from each other. And it was it was great in terms of observing scientists and seeing how they do present their work and seeing scientists interact with scientists. But what was really funny was when artists interacted with scientists and they completely threw them because the scientists are these really like <laughs> clever, amazing people with this research that I just really couldn't, I found I struggled to follow. But then an artist would ask something and they'd just be like, well, that's, that's <laughs> not a very scientific question. Um, and I thought maybe what would be interesting, an interesting experiment would be to get an artist and scientist together and make them present each other's work. And then maybe we could learn through each other's work, through each other's language. But I think there's like, there's been a lot of, there's been a bit of a surge recently in art and science cross-collaboration. I think scientists who normally find it quite difficult to communicate their research to a wider public because it's so complicated, are now finding that art's actually a really useful tool to kind of well, communicate to people in an aesthetic way. Art has a much more, it's much more likely to engage with our emotions. It's probably more likely to uh, change our behaviour or our beliefs and our understanding of the subject. It's a really interesting field. Absolutely. And I think they also both manage to get us comfortable with complexity, which is very important in these current times. I'll ask another question that has been really bothering me not being able to find sources of good technology criticism I really don't know what to believe so what do you think is the state of our current technology criticism that's quite a that's a good question if I were to think about technology criticism through the coronavirus that's probably quite yeah, a good context to exactly. it within. so when I came into this field I read a, oh, I wish I had it next to me. I read a book called What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. And it was really good because it introduced me to neuroscience and linked it to technology. Um, but it was kind of part of a field of books which are, could be described as extremist. And once you start reading them, they are so compelling. And they, it's kind of what got me into this field. And you really do read them and you're like, oh, my God, my device is frazzling <laughs> my brain. But then when you start speaking to scientists and speaking to researchers and through the Cognitive Sensations program that I've been explaining, it's it's not as black and white as that. I think it's very easy to choose certain studies and attune them to your um, views. 
And we're also living in this era right at the beginning of the digital era. Um, with past technologies, you have a lot longer to attune to them and to get used to them. Whereas like the smartphone like is absolutely crazy in terms of when it was introduced and how many people now use it. And it's quite frightening because people are just like, oh my God, these devices are completely changing our world. And it's actually too early to say if they do neurologically impact us. I think in psychology, there's a lot more kind of provable evidence and research to say they are very psychologically impacting us. But anyway, so with the coronavirus, everyone has, we've had no choice, but we've all had to switch to digital. Everything's gone digital. We all do our work online. Um, Kids are having their whole kind of education programs online. My grandma has been using Zoom to play bridge with her friends, which I really couldn't believe. Um, And it's just, I think, so many people who previously feared digital technology or maybe just didn't want to use it, maybe from a generational perspective, they didn't grow up with it. Everyone's now kind of been forced to try it out. And it's been a bit of a saviour, hasn't it? I think at the beginning it was very exciting and we're all like wow we can see our friends on zoom every day and get drunk and it feels really normal and then by the end uh, or now a lot of people are pretty fed up with having to interact in that way and obviously we're not in lockdown anymore so we don't have to but I think people are now seeing digital technology as a tool and they are actually seeing maybe past a lot of the negative connotations associated with technology and they're kind of valuing it as something that we really need in our lives and it's not going anywhere (laughs) it's only like it's only ever going to accelerate and accelerate and the coronavirus has massively done that what I personally would really hope would come out of um, what's happened this year is that people's awareness of the digital divide will get stronger. There are so many people out there who don't have access to technology or they don't have access to a reliable internet connection. And for them, during this year, it must have been absolutely awful. You know, kids don't have access to their school. People are stuck in their homes, but they can't actually see anybody. People who live by themselves and are lonely are more, much more likely to kind of be really reluctant to leave their homes. It's really important to be thinking about, okay, so what happens to people who don't have technology? And if it is developing at such a rate, and we are this reliant on it, we really need to be setting up um, a way that, a way that everyone, well, a way that it's accessible. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. There are other questions in the chat. Do you feel that technology mediates between the art world and the public? Or is it a tool to hide behind? So you said about looking at people when they're um, getting their phone or reaching for their phones to take pictures in galleries and to explore more through their phones. From what I understand or what I get from it is that people tend to hide behind their phones. So it's more of a ticking boxes I've been here and not a tool to learn, not to use to learn more while you're at a specific place, in a certain place. And I feel that in, where the device actually can contribute to more knowledge or expand on people's knowledge on, on where they are, what they're doing, 
they're using it as a tool to, to hide behind, to, to perhaps um, cover for their lack of confidence or, or lack of satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting is it totally depends on the person and devices, they're tools at the end of the day. So depending on your character or maybe your age, it's going to mean something different for, for different people. But I think you've kind of hit on this idea of anxiety and the fact that when we are in public spaces and you are by yourself and maybe you're in a gallery and you're kind of, I don't know, surrounded by all this information, sometimes you can feel quite vulnerable. Um, a really comforting thing to do is just to quickly have a look on your phone because your phone is also connection to people. It's kind of, well, I mean, it's so many things, social media, whatever. But yeah, it has become this kind of device of comfort. But also, it's, I think it's also extremely habitual. I know so many people who can't be alone without being on their device. So like, fine, they're, they're really um, sociable. And when they're with people, they would never go on their device. And they've got interesting hobbies and stuff. But as soon as they're alone, if they're on a train, sat down at home on the bed, it comes out because that's just become a kind of go-to behaviour. And that is, that's because we have become wired within our brains and within our processes to jump to this. Because um, the more you do it, the more that that just feels normal. And I think when you've got the option of, do I sit here and I have absent thought? Or do I tap into my phone and see what's going on? Obviously, the latter seems a lot more alluring. Um, but it does mean that we've kind of, lots of people have lost their capacity to just sit and think and daydream. And for me, I mean, I haven't been to a gallery for ages because I haven't been able to, but for me, um, the gallery was always quite an educational space. Like back when I was an art student, I'll go in there, I'm like, right, teach me. I don't know anything about, I don't know enough about art. Um, and but now I think it's it's different. People go to galleries and it's it's like oh cool look where I am and um, I better take like a, a picture of this and um, to show people and show people where I am. Yeah, does that kind of answer your question? It does. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I think we have another question or maybe a comment. Our smartphones maybe provide us with the most accessible and addictive way of curating our lives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think particularly for young people, um, for teenagers, it's them that have this kind of real, like really strong digital identity. I don't know about anyone here, but as an adult and as someone who works as a freelancer, I feel like I've got loads of digital identities. I've like... On Instagram, I've got my Cognitive Sensations site, which is quite a new Instagram. I've got one where I used to be an illustrator, and it started off as my illustrations, but now I think that's me. I've got another one where I put on videos of pianos, me playing the piano, and I don't think I'm curating my life. I don't. I mean, I'm not a big social media poster. I kind of use it as a tool for work, really. But then with younger kids or teenagers, it's something quite different. Kind of going maybe back to the neuroscience side, 
Uh, when you're a kid, you, you're extremely prone to social comparison and you're really influenced by what other people do around you and you really care about what people think about you. So you're, you're really conscious and when they live on social media for like eight, ten hours a day, you're constantly looking at what other people are doing and how they're curating themselves and how you're looking at the best possible versions of people. And this can have probably quite a negative impact on you and your self-esteem because of this kind of, yeah, this, this social comparison and the fact that you feel like online you have to be your best, per, your like the best version of yourself. I think learning to be silly online is really important because otherwise it all just feels so so formal. And it feels like you're performing. But I think if you can be yourself, then you're, I don't know, you can feel more open. <laughs> Absolutely. You wrote about how fragmented our self is online. And that the fact that we have so many accounts, like estimated to 200 different accounts on the internet by 2020. I mean, it, it could be alarming unless our consciousness kind of rises to that level of understanding what is happening to us. We have another question. Can you talk a bit more about the artists you work with for Cognitive Sensations? So for the exhibition, which was like in the very early stages of the programme, so the public programme, I think there are about 10 artists and the exhibition went on for six months. And it was mainly about, the artists were mainly interested in the relationship between technology and one's sense of self. There was one artist, called Ant Hamlin and he can't remember the full name of his artwork but I think it was called Me and something else but it was this sculptural piece and it was live and it repeatedly scanned Twitter feeds where people had they tweeted thankful so it was like algorithm and it was completely random and it was kind of trying to show the more positive side of social media and how it kind of brings people together it's kind of focusing on this idea of our devices being an extension of ourselves and a way that we can kind of celebrate positivity in our life. And then another artist, Shinji Toya, he, his artwork, The Getting Online, was really fascinating. He developed it, I think, in collaboration with Our Bike Gallery. Um, and it's an online artwork. It's another live one. And if you go onto the website, you basically you input a memory that you want to forget. You just don't want to remember it ever again. And then it lasted, I think the artwork lasted over a period of years. And over the years, these memories that would kind of like flit on the screen for small uh, periods of time would like slowly disintegrate. And it, they'd kind of appear to be like digitally fragmenting until they're no, they're no longer perceptible. And it, it critiques the systems of digital memory. And it also kind of it's like an opposite way of looking at the negative effects of going viral so online if you put something put a piece of information online it's there forever on certain websites they disappear like instagram because so many people post it uh, they're much less easy to see but with him the idea was like going backwards he wanted to create a portal where you could go back in time and anything you wanted to be forgotten would slowly go another artist uh, Julius Corwin he's I guess more of a designer and he created these hypothetical designs which looked at the experiences that we're missing in the, dig in the digital age and um, he's really interested in the fact that kind of like 
mentioned it earlier on, but we're at the we're in the very early stages of the digital age, and but the technology acceleration is going so so fast that we're almost like rushing to keep up with it. And he's questioning, wow, what are we kind of abandoning in our um, overstimulation of um, digital devices? So he made these hypothetical designs where he put forwards these different um, contemporary urban solutions to kind of bring those experiences back. So one design was called Hush. And it was like a space um, within a busy city where you could just lock in and then there'd be no noise and there'd be no connection and you just have silence. So that's this kind of like a brief overview. The more I read your Cognitive Sensations website, the more I wanted to understand, well, how can you build digital resilience, as you call it? How can you create moderation and control your digital habits? Do I have a bias? I, um, so it's definitely personal to the individual. We all use different applications. Um, we all have different levels of digital habits. And we all have different abilities in terms of saying, knowing when to stop. Um, so, I mean, digital resilience is actually a term used for young people. It's like a set of skills that are taught to young people to try and protect them against online harms which could be anything from uh, online bullying to sort of improper use of their data to internet addiction. But if you're thinking more in terms of generally and how, how we're using our technology, it, it almost opens a bit of a debate because there are many people who would say, you're not responsible um, for protecting yourself with your devices. It's a technology that is to blame. And even using the word technology is interesting because that's such a broad term and it doesn't yeah. actually refer to anything. So people will say, oh, my technology is affecting my kid's brain or the technology is making them or kind of reducing their ability to focus. As it's a huge term and it doesn't refer to anything, I think you have to think outside of technology and who makes it. So if you take a smartphone, for example, on a smartphone, you've got all sorts of different, um, and within them, there are lots of different tech, company, tech companies who design them. and But they all do share some similarities and their notification stimuli, sounds, flashing images. But the tech and the apps don't actually want you, to, they don't want you to do anything. It's the companies themselves that want to grab your attention and they want you to spend as much of your time on their device. So I think it's really important <laughs> to build digital resilience and realise that you are part of a massive industry and that is an industry for your attention. If you download an app and it's free and you're getting a service for free, you've got a question, well, why is it free? What are they getting from me? And that's your data. All of your data will help them um, kind of send you personalized ads or they might sell your data on to another company. And it's not to say don't download free apps because I don't think I've ever paid for an app, but um, <laughs> it's still something that you have to consider. I personally would put my phone, but always face down if I'm doing work, potentially in another room if I'm being really good or maybe out of hand's reach and I actually time in my time online. Sorry, I like schedule my time online. 
So instead of allowing myself to work and just like, just keep tapping my phone and seeing what's going on, I'm like, right, at 11, I can look and see what's been going on. Because if, if you allow yourself to constantly tap, oh my God, sometimes I'm just like, why, how am I doing it? I've actually got caught in this like digital addiction wormhole again. Um, I, I actually think I've got quite good digital habits. But when I find myself just absent-mindedly looking, um, I'm like, okay, this isn't good. So I think it's really important to have control of your habits. I think if you are a parent and you're more kind of interested in your kids' digital habits, then you've got to remember that you are setting a certain behaviour yourself. So there are a lot of people with babies um, who wouldn't want their babies to go on their phones, but they'll go on their phones in front of the baby. And all a baby wants to do is what their parents do. And if their parents is on this cool, shiny object, obviously they're going to want it. So I think there's, you've got to be really strict with yourself and you've got to set certain rules and just remember why or like who might be accessing your data and how it could be used. Another one is to make sure that you're like you've got the access to your location is switched off on your apps. It's something that you just kind of like naturally do, like, yeah, it's set. But that actually like reveals so much about who you are. And obviously we've heard about the whole uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal in America, with the 2016 Donald Trump election, where Facebook improperly shared the data of so many of their users. And then that was actually used to influence people in a political election. So I know we don't live in a country, but in the UK, we don't live in a country where we feel like maybe that's an issue, but you, you never know what's around the corner. And there are also companies in the US who use the data of people all across the world. So I think it's just, I think for me, it's privacy. It's something you should be really aware of. Absolutely. Somebody is arguing that, Matt is arguing that technology isn't new. Maybe it's the acceleration you're referring to in the availability of new tech that is novel to us at this point in time. We've always been fairly addicted to whatever tech has been made available throughout history. Do you think that's sorry, true? Do you think that's true? Or do you think our brains are, we became too close to technology? We're too susceptible to it. I think it's totally true. We are literally following a pattern of their behavior. Because whenever a new technology is introduced to society, it's always feared, particularly from a neurological perspective. Back to the time of when writing was invented, yeah. Plato feared that writing uh, would replace the brain's ability, well, it would replace our memory. In the same way that Google, people fear, oh, we're, we're, gonna be, we're not going to be able to remember things anymore because we rely on Google. But obviously our technology is actually an extension for our brain. It means that we can free our brain up to do other things. The cinema was quite a big one in terms of shifting people's perception. Until this point, people had only ever seen still images. So when they went to the cinema, they're like, oh, my God, I'm going to get like a sensory and they were really frightened, and the same with television as well. But I think the difference is between all of these technologies and what we're going through now is that we carry our technology around with us. Like, we've never had a technology that we touch every 12 minutes. You, you, kind of, you can't ignore the fact when you look at people and you kind of look at the impact of our devices on society that it is the way that we rely on it is it's completely taken off in comparison to other technologies. 
So I definitely, Matt, I completely, I do agree with you. And it's, that's a really common argument to come up. And I think often I'm like, ah, what's all the fuss? Maybe this research is a load of rubbish. But then I kind of then go back to observing people and reading about the kind of psychological impact of technology. And then I kind of like, no, it's, it's really impactful on us. And it's, it's so ubiquitous across the globe, like smartphones in particular, they're very affordable. So everyone, everyone owns one or everyone has access to one. But it is, it is, it's a very interesting debate. <laughs> Are there any other ways in which, or is it too soon to tell, in which our brains changed? We know the example with the GPS, that we don't know how to kind of navigate space. We don't navigate space the same as we would now that we have GPS. Are there any other changes that occurred? So I think the best way to think about changes is through a term neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is it's about the brain's ability to reshape itself or rewire itself uh, through its new experiences. So for example, if you learn to drive a car or you learn to you learn a new instrument or you build a habit, certain connections will start to form in your brain. If you start carrying out a certain new behavior and you drop another one, then you'll actually kind of lose the ability and lose that kind of connection from past behaviors so that you can replace it with a new one if it's to such an extent. So neuroplasticity is most present or most developmental when you're a baby and when you're a teenager. So when you're a baby, obviously you're learning so much and you're, you're born with 100 billion neurons but you haven't yet got the synapse, the synaptic links, which is what uh, connects the neurons. And it's what kind of, it shapes your thoughts, it shapes your behaviours, and it's kind of what makes you you. So none of us speaking now have the same synaptic connections. We all have different pathways in our brain, which is dependent on our experiences, what we've learned, who we are. So when they're babies, uh, we're learning how you walk, how you talk. Um, and if you're playing with a digital device for many hours a day you're also building really strong connections of like okay that's what I want to do and um, this is how I do it when you're a teenager the neuroplasticity is really important because you're more kind of learning about critical reasoning and how to think about your future so they're also really susceptible to these kind of changes in the brain we're always developing new connections in the brain. It's just that when you're a baby and when you're a teen, it, you're way more influenced. It's why people say learn a musical instrument when you're young because it'll be much harder when you're an adult. But we, you can still learn. And as a piano teacher, I can say you can. <laughs> Someone is commenting that we no longer remember phone numbers or Wi-Fi passwords. <laughs> no, my mum asked me the other day, she was like, what's Ollie's number? He's my boyfriend. I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah there's lots of things you forget but you if you've got a phone you have the information so maybe it doesn't matter you remember the craze with the selfie when everyone thought that people will become narcissists all of us what do you think about that I've read about it and it's it's not really something I've ever really followed up on because I think I just don't find it that convincing I think teenagers anyway are pretty obsessed with their appearance and they're the ones who are constantly taking selfies I think like having a phone and the ability to take a selfie is just giving them a tool that like 
that would make them do a behaviour they'd do anyway. When I was a teenager, I couldn't do a selfie, but I still had a camera and I took a lot of photos of myself. <laughs> so, and it's embarrassing. <laughs> but um, I think, oh yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I've got much to say about that, to be honest. I don't, I don't think I've researched it enough. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining us and, and to all of our volunteers that make these events happen. And um, you'll find all that information. And please do check us out on Instagram and other social media, especially our, our actual website, and get all the up-to-date information. Uh, I've been Matt from Agora. And uh, thanks for having weekend. me, Matt. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.